Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Robin, how are you doing this week? I'm I'm doing pretty good. Not too shabby around here. That's good. That does make me happy to hear that because it's been a frustrating week up here. Oh, man. Uh, there's just... I just... Listeners, YouTube and Twitter are not sources. That's all I'm going to say about that. Moving on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been an interesting few days on yeah. the social medias. Yeah. It's... it. Anyway, we're not here to uh, denigrate anybody or anything. I just nope. wanted to put that out there. We're going to move right on and right on through. Exactly. So. <laughs> we're actually here because together we research and break down complex issues facing our society. We bring you those breakdowns every other week. And we promise to bring you honest analysis backed by research. And maybe a little humor. Though a lot of the things that we cover are pretty heavy topics. We do try to interject a little bit of lightness every once in a while. So we recommend getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through some of this heavy stuff. First though, we would absolutely love to thank everyone who has listened to our first two episodes. If you're new here, we are deep into a series on systemic racism. We'd highly recommend going back and listening to the first two episodes. But if you just can't wait to jump in, we'll give you a quick rundown of how we're defining systemic racism and what we covered in our last episode. Right. And then uh, we'll get into the real meat of the discussion. Uh, systemic racism in education. We'll talk about the racist ideas that inform the racist policies and programs. Uh, we'll talk through what it looked like when explicitly racist policies governed education in the U.S., and we'll explain what systemic racism in education looks like today. Um, finally, we'll talk through the outcomes for students in these systems, what you can expect or what they can expect uh, in the long term from moving through these structures. And we'll try to end with some good news. That was a breath of fresh air last time, and uh, we definitely are going to need some of that after this discussion. So we hope you've got that drink handy because we're all about to get schooled. Okay, okay, I know. Bad puns and all. Welcome to our fireside. As a reminder, here are some of the terms, definitions, and premises that we're using to contextualize systemic racism. When we talk about racist ideas, we're definitely benefiting from the work of Dr. Ibram Kendi. He defines racist ideas as racial narratives that are created to inform, justify, and uphold racist systems. Any person is capable of producing, sharing, or believing racist ideas, regardless of their skin color. It's essential to know the difference between individual, implicit, systematic, and systemic racism. If you don't know that and you do need more clarification, I highly suggest that you listen to the first part of episode one. If you need to pause right here, go do that and come back. That's totally cool. We'll wait. Okay. And we need to acknowledge the fact that systemic or structural racism does not require any racial animus. You don't have to have overtly racist feelings to be complicit in systemic racism. If you're listening to that last point and thinking that we seem to harp on that a lot, you're right. <laughs> I don't think we can stress this enough. 
there is a pervasive idea that being racist means you are overtly racist. Until such point as people understand that systems and structures in our society can be racist without the actors themselves being racist, we won't be able to challenge those systems. The way we do things, the systems we operate under, they should always be subject to challenge, to analysis, to criticism. That's how things get better. Humans as a whole have an ego about our societies. We tend to default to thinking the society we belong to is the best society. Nobody has ever done society better than we have done society. Nobody has ever, you know, won society like we are winning at society. Somehow, we fail to realize that every society throughout time has thought that way. Every great civilization has thought, yes, this is how things should be. All is right and just. And until enough people start questioning, start thinking, start criticizing, uh, they stay, right? But as soon as those people start thinking or asking questions, or as soon as enough of them start asking questions, start criticizing, that society changes. Sometimes a whole new society is born. That's, that's how and why we have the United States. We, the people who lived here, started questioning the way things were done and decided that the way things were done wasn't good enough for us. It's why we don't all live under feudalism, because many, many, many centuries ago, they decided that wasn't good enough. Something needed to change. It's why we should continue to question things now, to ask ourselves, is this truly just? Is this right? Is this the best way to do things? And we all need to be capable of accepting that maybe the way we're doing something is not the best way to do it. Maybe we're not quite there. Sure, we're probably better than where we were, but there's no shame in admitting that we could be better still. And there's no shame in working towards that. This is running a little long, so I'll end this little tangent with this. Many, if not all, of us thought that the way we were 10 years ago was the best version of ourselves. And likely it was the best version of yourself up until that point. But if we still behave today, if you still behave today the way you did 10 years ago, I know I, for one, would not have the life that I have now. The me of 10 years ago was not capable of the things that I can do now, emotionally and physically. And that's good. There's no shame in that. The same can hold true for our nation, for any nation. We should never be so certain of the way we are now that we fail to consider ways that could be better. That's so true. And I think that's why we have to talk about the past before we can talk about the present and we have to, and we can talk about the future. We have to acknowledge the way that things were and how they can be in the future. Speaking of the past, on the last episode, we discussed the racist ideas, explicitly racist policies, 
and the racist systems that have led to systemic disadvantage for Black and Indigenous Americans when it comes to housing and land. We talked about the racist idea of civilization, assimilation, and divine providence that justified the removal of Native Americans from their land, and then the redistribution of that land to white settlers. We talked about the racist idea that theorized that Blacks were too inherently dangerous to live among whites. Mm, We still see the vestiges of that today. Uh, We also covered the ways in which land was taken from Native Americans by European settlers, both by force and then by attrition, uh, through explicitly racist programs and policies. We discussed explicitly racist segregation in housing and the long-lasting effects of redlining. We addressed the ongoing effects of those explicitly racist programs. That's what we mean by systemic racism here on communities of color. And we talked about the outcomes, the end result of living inside a system of underprivilege. And after that episode, I don't think we received any questions specifically on that. We did get some feedback from some of you, which was great. We, we do appreciate that. Hopefully yes. you can see us applying that <laughs> as we go forward. If you do have a question or you want to reach out, we will list a few ways to do that at the end of the show. And we have an email. We have a Facebook page. And we do want to give thanks to one M. Webster, who left us a review on iTunes. We are very grateful for that. It Thank you was, so much. Yes, it was great to read that and, and uh, see your feedback. It made us smile. So we're just going to roll right into it. We're going to get into the dirt, the nitty gritty of today's episode. So like the other forms of systemic racism we've talked about, there are racist ideas that inform the historically racist policies and the current racial disparities between education and educational outcomes for white students and students of color. Not surprisingly, these racist ideas heavily overlap with the racist ideas that informed housing and land policies, and we covered those in detail in the last episode. So we'll just sum them up quickly here without trying to reinvent the wheel. So we know that one of the primary racist ideas was the civilization and assimilation of Native Americans, and this extended then into Native students. White settlers in America believed that it was their duty, divine and or civic, to civilize Native American children. They believed that it was necessary for the children's benefit and for the benefit of society to eliminate their tribal practices and force them to adopt European practices. Richard Henry Pratt, who was a a big force in this assimilation through education process, coined the phrase at one point, kill the Indian, save the man. The goal was to eradicate every vestige of Native American culture in favor of European practices. And it's important to note that this was not just a general cultural thought. This was actual federal policy at one point. Something we didn't mention in last episode was the 1819 Civilization Fund Act, which authorized the president in, quote, every case where he shall judge improvement in the habits and condition of such Indians practicable to employ capable persons of good moral character to introduce any tribe adjoining a frontier settlement in the arts 
of civilization. That's really archaic language for basically anywhere that the president thought that American Indians could improve their civilization and their participation in society. He was authorized to spend about $10,000 a year, which is roughly $200,000 of purchasing power in today's money, even though it's really hard to equivocate the two, to fund anything that he wanted to do to civilize the Native Americans further. Uh, another idea that drove these explicitly racist policies was the inability of blacks and whites to coexist. Uh, as we discussed last week, there was, and as I've already mentioned in this episode, some could still argue there still is a common belief that blacks and whites could not coexist in the same physical spaces. Some believed that black people were inherently dangerous Others were concerned about race mixing, and still others just believed that the two cultures were just too different. So with these ideas in mind, now we get to move on and talk about some of the explicitly racist policies that have governed American education in the not-so-distant past. First, I think we have to talk about American Indian schools. Um, the period of time in which these were operational was from about 1860 to 1973. <laughs> so we're only about 47 years outside of this particular era. And, wow. and even still, those schools weren't completely eradicated in 1973. The forms that they took on changed significantly. But some, some of those same schools still exist today. That's crazy. Actually, I... I did not see this particular note while we were going over all of our, our show notes. This is something that you found, and I did not realize that they continued up until that recently. Oh, yes. Wow. And it gets even more shocking, so just hold on to the hat you're probably not wearing. Okay, so we talked a little bit earlier about Richard Henry Pratt. Um, another great quote that I found from him said, In Indian civilization, I am a Baptist because I believe in immersing the Indian in our civilization, and when we get them under, holding them there until they are thoroughly soaked. His entire purpose was to drown the Native Americans in European culture and civilization. <clears throat> it's lovely just man. shocking. Yeah, lovely, lovely idea. Yeah. So we're in the final decades of the 1800s, right? And the Indian Wars are reaching their conclusion, and most Native Americans are sequestered on reservations throughout the United States. At this time, the United States government began a program to educate Native American children in federalized schools. The goal was to teach them the necessary moral and practical principles that they would need to become active participants in the U.S. labor force and in the political system. In 1878, Colonel Pratt began his social experiment by securing permission to educate 17 Kiowa and Comanche prisoners of war at the only school that was willing to accept Indians at the time, the all-black Hampton Institute, that's, which that makes that's sense, That's really, right? yeah, that makes sense. I was going to say it's interesting, but it's only interesting, I guess, in the face of how obvious that is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, of course it was the all-black school that accepted Native students. Of course. Who else could identify with that? Right. 
Then about 13 years later, the government issued a compulsory attendance law that basically enabled federal officers to forcibly take Native American children from their homes and their reservations and enroll them in these schools. In 1895, interestingly enough, 19 men from the Hopi Nation were imprisoned in Alcatraz for the sole reason that they refused to send their children to a Native American boarding school. I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions about that. I mean, they were sent to a federal prison? Not even a federal, just any federal prison. No, yeah, like Alcatraz. Alcatraz. These Native American men were picked up from their reservation and transplanted into one of the most legendary prisons of all time because they refused to allow their children to be forcibly removed from their home and sent to a boarding school. You know, <laughs> you know what that reminds me of, actually, uh, eerily, is there was a, a woman, I'll have to see if I can find the, the news article to add to a pin to the show notes here, but a woman who faked her address so she could get her kid yes. into a certain school district. Yes. She ended up going to jail. That's, well, yeah, the more things yeah. change. Exactly. By 1900, there were 153 of these Indian schools, and 25 of them were boarding schools, and the numbers just grew from there. And it's it's really heartbreaking to note that when these students got to these schools, after being, in most cases, forcibly removed from their homes, they were stripped of every vestige of Native life that they had ever known. Their long hair, which was a badge of honor in their native communities was cut short. Their traditional clothing was replaced with starched and scratchy uniforms. They were for almost a hundred years punished for speaking their native languages and discouraged or forbidden from contacting their own families. You know, I think the hair goes beyond just a a badge of honor. I think for certain cultures, it was a a spiritual thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it was. I'm The idea that something between 20 and 30,000 children were removed from their homes and placed into these completely foreign environments. I don't even know what to say. It is frightening to me what people will do in the name of, quote, for their own good, yeah. which is really what this is. I think it's hard to argue that you're doing something for someone's own good without any input from that person, right? without asking them what they need. There's a whole lot that we could talk about in there. We're just going to have to roll on through because this is, this is already a, a meaty one. So those schools that you were talking about, they became a, a center for industry, if you will. One of the expressed goals of the program was training Native youth in manual labor. And because of that, the schools were required, or sorry, the schools required children to work um, to keep the schools financially solvent. So students raised crops and tended to farm animals. They cooked meals. They cleaned facilities. They sewed clothing and manufactured shoes. And they operated printing presses and laundries. In in short, schools were self-contained with industrial skills taught to hopefully equip children to feed and clothe themselves upon graduation. I mean, that doesn't sound too bad, right? Uh, Yeah. 
it sounds it's you know it sounds well intended and it probably right. was i guess well intended it wasn't intended as a punishment the problem is the execution of those things is a whole nother a whole nother thing the the gulf between intention and reality can be quite large at times oh yeah so and we have seen that played out well over we're on episode three so three episodes worth yeah yeah, we've talked about it for over three hours now. We're going to be rolling into hour five by the end of this one, maybe six. So anyway, of these of these jobs, most dreaded were the steam-filled laundries, where students were virtually prisoners. One early 20th century writer concluded that children neither have the time nor the vitality to play. You know, <laughs> we just had my nephews over this weekend. They're like one and two. And... I cannot imagine a life that would drain them of their ability to play. Because they, I mean, and they're still young, but even six, seven, eight-year-olds, they have endless reserves of energy, it seems like. So, mm, many, many of the employees in the Indian service actually lamented the conditions under which Indian children were forced to labor in the Indian schools. Uh, one Estelle Aubrey Brown clerked at the Pima, Arizona agency, noting 20 Pima girls ages 12 to 18 worked four hours a day, six days a week, in the laundry where temperatures of around 120 degrees were common. She said, I knew these girls were consistently overworked, knew they were always hungry, Simply, they did not get enough to eat. We all knew it. Most of us resented it, were powerless, or too cowardly to try to do anything about it. So, the nurses tasked to care for these girls, and the clerks at the school itself were torn by these programs, and struggled between the necessity to make a living for their families, and the resentment of the conditions these horrendous conditions under which, in, at least in Pima, 264 American Indians labored. And I think that quote right there is a really, it's a really poignant quote because it points to the struggle that I think a lot of people have with these racist systems, with being complicit in these systems without actually having any overtly racist feelings. They, this particular person points out that she felt like she was torn between her need to, to advocate for these girls and her need to bring home a living and take care of her own family. Right. One of the truly insidious parts of these structural racist systems is the fact that the people, even the people who they don't directly affect, might be unwilling to act against them because they're afraid of how it could destroy their own life. Which, objectively, that's not great. Because <laughs> people are already living destroyed lives. You should probably have some empathy or exercise it. But subjectively, if you were in that situation, it's really hard to remove yourself from your personal struggle enough to, 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 to drum up the will to fight against those systems. It's scary. And I think I think we can understand being scared in that situation. I'm not saying it's right, but I can definitely understand that. Absolutely. 
And because these schools had to operate as these little industrial complexes because they needed to be self-sufficient, there was a huge drive to bring in as many students as possible. So you have super cramped and labor-intensive conditions, and as you can imagine, disease ran virtually unchecked in these schools. Tuberculosis and uh, trachoma, which is an eye infection that can lead to blindness, were two of the most common outbreaks among Native American students. Notable measles and smallpox outbreaks also occurred. There was always an outbreak of something. At the Hampton Institute, the superintendent Armstrong reported that 10 of the first 49 enrolled Indian students had died at the school. That's a 20% mortality rate in the first 49 students enrolled at that school. I mean, that's an absolutely odious beginning to the federal Indian school experiment. I can't even imagine why with that kind of a mortality rate, it would be allowed to continue. But within two decades, the superintendent at another school, Crow Crow Creek in South Dakota, reported that almost all of his students were tainted with scrofula and consumption, which suggested that there was always a strong correlation between illness and these schools. I would like to say that one of the reasons those conditions were allowed were because the internet was not a thing. So the dissemination of information wasn't as easy. But based on some of the things that we've seen lately, (laughs) I think think it's more likely that humans have always struggled to exercise empathy for the other, quote unquote, the the other group, whatever that is. As soon as you can successfully divide one group of people from another group of people, you are going to have an easier time maltreating one of those groups, mistreating one of those groups, because the other group will have a much harder time drumming up the necessary amount of empathy to be outraged at those things. And I think that's one of the radical shifts we're seeing in modern society is that more people are finding that empathy. I think that's why we saw these massive protests in the past couple of months, not just in the United States, but globally is because there are more people now who are able to find and access that empathy. They have overcome that manufactured barrier of the other. Yes. Uh, Just an observation. I don't have, you know, a study to support that. Um, That's just a personal opinion, but it makes sense in my head. There is actually a book out there, I don't remember the author off the top of my head, called How to Think, and it definitely goes into that concept of otherism and provides some actual research as far as that mindset goes. So if you're looking for research information on otherism, how to think. We might just drop that on our Facebook page. Yeah. Why not? Make a note. So going back to these schools, at the turn of the century, the government rapidly filled the schools, especially the boarding facilities, beyond their intended capacities. This was specifically in order to keep production high. Sorry, another tangent. We see this today in the prison system. The national, the United States national prison system is also still a center for industry within the United States. We talked about it a couple episodes ago. They are over capacity, almost every single one of them. And it's because there is profit in keeping prisons full, either in production or if you are a for-profit prison. We will probably get that to get to that later. I just that stuck out to me as we were going through this. Anyway, so as a result of this overcrowding, uh, student health was endangered, obviously, as children known to be in or suspected of poor health 
were placed in schools in order to maintain peak operating efficiencies. In San Carlos, Arizona, Apache Day School in 1899, Interior Department Indian Inspector William J. McConnell noted that prospective students were superficially examined and others not at all. That's a quote. With the result that, quote, tuberculosis frequently develops and apparently for no other reason than to maintain a full attendance, end quote. Tubercular children were kept at the school until the very last stage of the disease. And at that point, that basically guaranteed that the disease spread to other students. Then, to prevent deaths from occurring at the school, those, those final stage students were carted home. They were sent home where they would stay alive for a couple of days on average and then die. And of course, they're critically ill at this point and exposing their own families to this. So you have a secondary infection basically happening, a secondary wave happening every time one of these children are sent home and infecting their immediate family. Though the Indian service did not seem concerned by the consistent outbreaks and dangerous health outcomes in these schools, others were. McConnell spent most of his four-year term investigating these crises and advocating for improved systems and conditions. By 1900, the size of the health staff in the employee of these schools increased, but it didn't really do much to address the core underlying contributors to ill health, such as the, the strict military discipline, the inadequate diets, regimentation, uh, routinization, and overcrowding. His thoughts on it was that the word murder is a fearful word, but yet the transfer of pupils and subjecting them to such tearful mortality is little less. I mean, he literally said that what they were doing was tantamount to murder. It's heartbreaking, really, and the reality of these conditions is that because students were so cut off from their families, often the parents weren't even notified of their child's illness until it was too late. For example, in 1906, the superintendent of Flandreau Indian Boarding School in South Dakota wrote a letter to the parents of one of his students named Lizzie, and he said, It is with a feeling of sorrow that I write to you, telling you of the death of your daughter, Lizzie. She was not sick but a short time, and we did not think her so near the end. Those that were with her say she did not suffer, but passed away as one asleep. Lizzie was one of our best girls, and was always ready to do right. She will be missed by all who know her. I, as a parent of two middle school-aged girls, cannot fathom being so disconnected from my child that I would get a letter one day informing me of the regrettable death of my child at this boarding school that I was forced to send them to. I don't think yeah. there's any... I mean, unless you have lived through that, there's no way to, to understand what that would feel like. I guess the modern-day equivalent is a phone call to let right. you know that you know, somebody has died, but your child. Yeah, of a condition that, that by that point was fairly preventable. McConnell really did his best to advocate for these students, and he wasn't the only one. 
uh, Francis Loop, who who was the commissioner of Indian Affairs from 1905 on, really worked to own up to the challenge of Indian health care. And so once he made the decision to attack that health problem, it became the most foremost policy on his agenda. He worked really hard to try and change some of these conditions. That's good. I, uh, I'm glad that happened in 1905. It took only 68 years for, <laughs> for, uh, for broader recognition to, to come to the government's attention. Uh, basically, the Merriam Report, officially titled The Problem of Indian Administration, was submitted February 21st, 1928 to the Secretary of the Interior, Hubert Work. This basically sparked a reformation in Native education. It was a report that detailed these conditions and what actually happened here. So related specifically to the education of Native American children, it recommended that the government abolish the uniform course of study, which only taught European American cultural values at these schools. It should educate younger children at community schools near home and have older children attend non-reservation schools for higher grade work. So try to keep people closer to their home. And then it should have the Indian Service, which is now the Bureau of Indian Affairs, provide American Indians the education and skills they need to adapt both in their own communities and the United States broader society. It did take until about the 1960s before substantive changes to conditions and curriculum really set in. And unfortunately, through these times, attendance at those schools continued to grow. You know, it's interesting. I came across something in my research that may explain why, even despite these horrific conditions, and even despite the fact that recommended changes weren't being made, these school populations continued to grow. So in 1921, California law was actually amended to include a stipulation that said that American Indian children could only attend California public schools if an Indian facility could not be found within a three-mile distance from their home. And this policy endured until 1935. So essentially, Native American parents were compelled by the law, in some cases, to send their children to these schools, and then prevented by the law, in other cases, from sending their students to regular public schools. It's a conundrum that we see repeated over and over again in minority communities. They're darned if they do and darned if they don't, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You better do exactly what we tell you, but only do it in the way we tell you to do it. Because if you try to do it some other way, you're going to prison. And then in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act, along with some other policies, allowed Native parents more control in refusal to send their child to one of these Native American schools. And these schools began to close in the 80s. The conditions in these schools in the, in the 70s and the 80s were very different than they were in the early 1900s. Society had progressed far enough that we understood disease spread, we understood more about humane treatment, and things did progress. But there was still an element 
of separation and segregation from the tribal family, from the tribal community, for the purposes of educating Native children. Hmm. And interestingly enough, according to my research, some of the laws that were put in place to compel Native American families to send their children to these schools are still technically on the books. Like there's one that authorizes the Secretary of the Interior to withhold rations and benefits from Native American families that refuse to send their kids to these schools. It's a little bit defunct in application at this point because most Native American families are not really receiving rations. I think that one was on the books from the – it was either World War I or World War II. Hmm. But still, these laws have – most of them not not been written out of our policy. That's interesting. You actually see a lot of – I mean, just on a broader scale, a lot of laws that are still on the books that aren't really enforced or even enforceable anymore. Exactly. It's just weird – that some of these obviously messed up laws are just, (laughs) no, I mean, still there. And what worries me is not that those laws will be necessarily enforced, but if they're still on the books, they can be used, uh, especially if somebody is not necessarily the best actor or have the, the best intentions in mind. Extant laws, even if they're old, can still be used and kind of twisted in order to force something to happen. So in the case that you're talking about, it would probably be a rather trivial matter to redefine rations in the context of that law to mean something like like food assistance programs. That's a good point. That's scary feel like it's time to do some cleaning up of our law books. But I think that's the case in very many Just situations. all the time. Just all the time. <laughs> okay, so now that we have gotten into the, the thoroughly horrifying history of American Indian schools, I think it's important that we make the jump over to segregation as far as Black American children and their educations. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we yes. all know that before Brown versus the Board of Education... Black students and white students were segregated into different schools. Um, These segregated black schools were under-resourced and underfunded compared with the white schools in the same areas. And in some places, black students were forced to travel long distances to school without transportation provided. Black teachers were often paid less than their counterparts in white schools, and they taught with outdated textbooks that were handed down from white schools Some of the buildings that black children attended school in were crumbling and had inadequate heating and cooling systems. They were absolutely nowhere close to equal with white schools, as was designated in Plessy versus Ferguson. But we also have to note that these black students were being taught by highly educated black teachers and administrators. And This is a quote from um, an author named Vanessa Walker, who said in in a paper that I was reading that was discussing the loss of black educators as school integration began. She said that inside the classrooms of segregated schools, there was a focus on civics and democratic ideals. Black children were taught to aspire to greater things than the status quo of segregation. The students were separated and the schools were absolutely not equal. But black students had access to black teachers and black administrators that were full of agency 
and educated them on how to be more involved and to rise above their current circumstance. That's actually, in the grand scheme of things, not great, but it is pretty cool. That's a, yeah. that's a cool silver lining, I think, and probably speaks a lot to why we had the civil rights movement that we did. Absolutely. Because a lot of these people, obviously, were, were being educated to believe these things and to think about these things and to not just think about them, but to act for them. Um, exactly. So that's cool. I didn't actually, I didn't actually know the the state of the segregation schools. I knew that they, on paper, weren't being supported financially. We didn't have the best materials. But it's cool to hear a little bit about the uh, the actual administration of these places. Yeah, it's a perspective that we we don't get very often. We talk a lot about the segregation and integration of American schools, especially in the South, but we don't often get the perspective from inside. A black classroom. I want to talk a little bit about Brown versus the Board of Education because it is very important. And I think many people either never heard of it or weren't paying attention in school or <laughs> they didn't go into a lot of detail. I know, at least at my school, we hammered this one a lot because it is a critical case. But uh, just, a, just a quick overview of this. Brown v. Board of Education ha- what happened in 1954. What happened was in Topeka, based on an 1879 law, the Board of Education, uh, this is Topeka, Kansas, operated separate elementary schools for white and African-American students. Uh, the, the NAACP in Topeka challenged this policy of segregation by recruiting 13 Topeka parents to enroll their combined 20 children in the school closest to them, which were schools designated for whites. As you would expect for the time period, each of the children was rejected and instructed to attend schools designated for African Americans. These schools were considerably farther away than the white schools. For example, one student, Linda Brown, the daughter for whom this case is named, the daughter of the named plaintiff, rather, um, could have attended a white school several blocks from her house, but instead was required to walk some distance to a bus stop and then take the bus for a mile to an African-American school. So once the children had been refused admission to the schools designated for whites, the NAACP brought the lawsuit. They were unsuccessful at the trial court level due to the court applying the Plessy v. Ferguson decision that we talked about earlier from 1896. However, Even the trial court agreed that educational segregation had a negative effect on African-American children. Despite this, it applied the standard of Plessy in finding that the white and African-American schools offered sufficiently equal quality of teachers, curricula, facilities, and transportation. Since the NAACP did not challenge the details of those findings, it essentially cast the appeal as a direct challenge to the system imposed by Plessy. This is important because that distinction allowed them to make a really strong argument when they got to the Supreme Court. The NAACP actually used that same tactic in several states. So when it did get reached the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court did hear the appeal, the Supreme Court actually combined Brown with four other cases that were happening simultaneously. So Brown actually stood apart from the others in the group as the only case that challenged the separate but equal doctrine on its face. 
The others were based on assertions of gross inequality, which would have violated the standard in Plessy as well. The deciding opinion was penned by Chief Justice Warren, and he based much of his opinion on information from social science studies rather than court precedent. That was because there were very few decisions that existed on which the court could rely. So up until that point, there hadn't been a lot of cases that they could reference back to. So they, they had to create whole cloth the standard here. Um, the decision also used language that was relatively accessible to non-lawyers because Warren felt that it was necessary for all Americans to understand its logic. So if you go back and you read this opinion, it's not like most legal documentation in that it is easier to understand. I'm definitely going to caveat for anybody who goes to read it that the relatively part of that statement is doing a really big lift there <laughs> because it is still a it's still a court case. There's still levels of logic and Supreme Court justices are no slouch intellectually. So it can be kind of difficult to work through. But as far as opinions go, it's actually not that hard to read. So some of the findings that were expressed in these opinions were um, segregation of white and Negro children in the public schools of a state solely on the basis of race denies African-American children the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, even if the facilities and other factors are quote-unquote equal. That was a summation. Uh, half of that was a quote, which is why it started off with Negro. The Another decision or another opinion that came out of this was that the 14th Amendment itself is not a static standard. The standards of equal protection evolve with the development of public education and its import in American life. As the value of public education changed, um, the standard of what equal meant, the standards of equal protection um, also changed with it because necessarily your protections gain more strength as the importance of what is being protected gains strength. And that, that case was foundational in so, so many ways. And as it began to usher in the integration of American primary and higher education institutions, we start to see some interesting things unfold. We didn't include a lot of information in this episode about the integration of schools simply because in American culture, in American media, that has been so heavily represented and it has been very accurately represented. One can very easily find information that shows just how traumatic it was for groups of black students like the Little Rock Nine to walk up to school buildings surrounded by angry white parents who are screaming and spitting and holding signs and demanding that they go back where they came from. We're very well aware of stories like that of Ruby Bridges who sat alone in a classroom for years of her education with a single teacher because no other student or no other family would allow their student to be in a classroom with her. Those images and those stories are very pervasive in American culture. 
And it's important that we remember that they're presented triumphantly, but there's still a lot of work to be done on that aspect. There's very much this idea that we as a nation have overcome because of the sacrifices of people like Ruby Bridges and the Little Rock Nine. And and in ways we have, but as you'll see, as we start going through some more of this information, we are not done overcoming. We have not fully yet overcome. Hmm. And so we encourage you if the stories of integration of American schools are meaningful to you, go seek them out. They're impactful and they're presented in vivid detail. And there's almost nothing that you can't find about them. But we chose to include some information in this episode that was a little harder to find and that is not very clearly presented in our American narrative. I do want to raise a point, though, that was actually raised by Dr. Kendi in a presentation that I was able to watch last week. And he was talking about what integration in American schools in the South meant. And he brought up the idea that that integration meant bringing black students into white schools, which were considered by many to be superior in resources and in quality. We know that the resources that they had were were new, whereas the black schools had hand-me-downs. But we have to note that it, it didn't mean bringing white students into black schools. And so that further solidified the idea that these white schools were inherently better and that black students needed the benefit of that proximity to whiteness in order to succeed. But it reinforced the idea that proximity to blackness would be an actual detriment to white students. And it also cost the school system thousands of highly educated black teachers, many of whom were educated at integrated Northern universities and had experience with educating in integrated contexts. As the black students were moved into white school districts, these very valuable teachers and very valuable perspectives were lost because these educators could not get jobs in white school systems. Hmm. So I would, I would encourage you to seek out that story a little bit as part of the, what we're still working to overcome in the idea of integrated schools in America. That is really, really interesting. Actually, we don't, we don't ever hear it called out, I think, that it wasn't about truly integrating. It wasn't about white students moving into schools that were uh, traditionally African-American and African-Americans also moving into schools that were traditionally white. It was literally African-Americans moving primarily into these these white schools. And... Um, I think there were some actual problems the few times that it was floated to move white kids into African-American schools. I think there was actually, uh, we didn't include any, any discussion on it in this episode, but when I was reading about busing, that was one of the things that came up was white students, white families didn't want their student to be bused into a, you know, an African-American school. It was strictly the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we get into this systemic racist phase, we'll see those ideas repeated over and over and over again, that minority school districts are inherently less and that white school districts are inherently more desirable. And we also have to note that 
that higher education followed very much the same pattern as primary school education when it came to integration. Four-year colleges and universities, especially in the South, were actively segregated. And those in the North, most of them admitted few Black students. There were some universities that did a fairly good job of integrating, but it definitely was not the majority. And so in the South, we had what we now call historically Black colleges and universities. That was a term that was defined by the Higher Education Act in 1965, and it refers to those colleges and universities established prior to 1964, specifically for the purposes of educating Black Americans. The earliest of these universities were created in Pennsylvania and Ohio prior to the Civil War to educate Black Americans primarily in trade skills because there were still some really pervasive racist ideas about the intelligence capacity of Black Americans. And then by the early 2000s, there were more than 100 historically Black colleges and universities recognized in the United States, most of which are in the South. It's really important to note, though, that these historically Black colleges and universities, most of them have really diverse student bodies. They're historically Black colleges, but they're very welcoming to students of all races and ethnicities and income levels. The, the series of Supreme Court cases that culminated in Brown versus Board of Education also impacted higher education and made the case, again, that separate institutions were inherently unequal. And so that led to the gradual forced integration of not only the primary schools, but also colleges and universities. So I think we're going to we're kind of move from this explicitly racist stage uh, with that note about Brown v. the Board of Education. Let's talk a little bit about the structural, the systemic racism that is prevalent today. So something that educational researchers are noticing is that American public schools are now drifting back towards being segregated. Now, this isn't because of laws that's forcing it. It's an intersection of a lot of things that we've talked about, just like everything with this systemic racism. Um, but there's some effects of this. One of them is black-white exposure, or the number of black students attending predominantly white schools. This peaked in the 1990s, actually in 1990, rather, and it has unfortunately been declining steadily since that point. The, there was a Supreme Court ruling in 1991 that federal desegregation orders were never meant to continue in perpetuity and that some districts could be released from them. Since then, hundreds of those orders have been dismissed, mostly in the South. There is an, an interesting timeline created by Tolerance.org listed in our references that gives an overview of school segregation policies from 1849 to 2007, if you would like to give that a look. I think it will be very eye-opening <laughs> to a lot yes. of people. The fact that there were segregation policies in 2007 is eye-opening to me by itself. It, mm. Absolutely. And and we have to admit, too, that those policies and and the mandates in these individual school districts that required them to integrate are even still today in 2020 being called out, challenged, 
primarily by white parents who don't want their wealthy school districts to be forcefully integrated and repealed. Wait, it's, so it's happening all the time. What you're saying is just because there was a court decision, everything didn't magically get integrated and people didn't just magically accept it? Look, I know it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, right? Doesn't Don't laws change everything? No, it's been brought up to me several times in conversations about these issues with people that, well, we have laws that should provide a recourse for anyone who feels like their rights are being violated. And while that's true, we also have to recognize that not everybody whose rights are violated has the agency to advocate for themselves on such a level that they can realize the benefits available to them or the protections available to them under these laws that are technically on the books and that are most often not known of or understood by the people that they're designed to benefit. A law doesn't do you any good if you can't hire a lawyer to present your case. One thing that's prominent and discussed a lot when we talk about racial disparities in the education system is something called an academic gap. That's the difference in test scores between students at poor minority schools and wealthy white schools. And it's brought up a lot as evidence that minority school districts are inherently worse because they're funded less. And when you objectively look at those test results, it can seem that that is the case. It's important, though, that we consider that Academic achievement can be varied based on, on what you're talking about. So even though they make up a declining segment of the overall school population, white students still make, make up a disproportionate amount of the students that are enrolled in advanced classes in K-12 schools. That's one of these marks of academic achievement that they're comparing. On the other hand, a 2016 report from the Obama administration showed that just over half the percentage of black students are enrolled in AP classes or in gifted and talented programs as white students. And Hispanic students are also similarly underrepresented. These students aren't being recognized as gifted and talented or being given the opportunity to enroll in gifted and talented programs or AP classes sometimes because they're passed over by the teachers who are supposed to advocate for them, but also sometimes because their school districts just don't have access to those programs because they are underfunded. And we'll talk about funding. I want us to stop here for just a minute and consider something. There's a lot of information and research that exists about these gaps in test scores and traditional achievement among minority students and again, if you're really interested in that, we highly encourage you to seek that out. We'll try to find some really great resources to share with you on Facebook this week. But I also want to encourage you to challenge the way that you see educational achievement. I'm blessed in that I have a daughter who has some neurodiversity challenges. She has ADHD among some other challenges, and it's really forced me to look outside the traditional achievement perspective. Because not only does she struggle with that, but she also qualifies for our local gifted and talented program. There are different perspectives on achievement and intelligence and knowledge. And 
we really need to do a better job of, of learning how to measure those in these different communities. I read an absolutely outstanding quote from Dr. Kendi in How to Be an Anti-Racist, and it really made me sit and think for a minute. He said, what if all along these well-meaning efforts at closing the achievement gap have been opening the door to racist ideas? What if different environments lead to different kinds of achievement rather than different levels of achievement? What if the intellect of a low-testing black child in a poor black school is different from, and not inferior to, the intellect of a high-testing white child in a rich school? What if we measured intelligence by how knowledgeable individuals are about their own environments? What if we measured intellect by an individual's desire to know? What if we realized that the best way to ensure an effective educational system is not by standardizing our curricula and tests, but by standardizing the opportunities available to all students? Let's sit with that for just a second. I like it because we're all conditioned right now, I think everybody is, to see a grade card as the only indicator of academic achievement, right? If you get straight A's, you're smart. If you don't, you have academic problems. Yeah. But, I mean, what if... Is it truly impressive for a person who has you know, stable household, stable income, all of their needs provided for, is it really more impressive for that person to make straight A's than it is for somebody growing up in a household that isn't stable, that is struggling, that has to maybe work to make passing grades? Yeah. Right? I would argue that it's way harder for that second person to, to make, if you will, the C than it is for the first person to make an A. In the midst of all of this coronavirus pandemic shakeup in education, several notable schools, Harvard being one of them, announced that they would be throwing out standardized test scores in their admissions process for the coming year. And while that really angered some people, so many people who advocate for equity in education were rejoicing because those standardized test scores are held often as the highest standard when we know that there are a lot of our students who don't have the resources that they need to make the high scores on those standardized tests. Mm -hmm. So the idea that a student could be considered for a school like Harvard this coming year without a standardized test score, if they maintain that policy, could be a huge leap forward in education equity. I mean, sometimes the difference in, in a one of those, like the ACT, right? The difference in score can literally be how many times you've taken it. Yes. I took the test three times, and my score changed six points between the first time I took it and the last time I took it. Yep. And it was just because I was more familiar with the environment, what to expect, how to take the test. If you yeah, can only afford absolutely. to take it one time, you're automatically at a disadvantage. And, and speaking of affording things, I think... If we're going to talk about systemic racism in education, we absolutely have to talk about how our schools are funded. There's a quote in our, that we found in our research that says, The racial and economic segregation created by gerrymandered school district boundaries 
continues to divide our communities and rob our nation's children of fundamental freedoms and opportunity. Families with money or status can retain both by drawing and upholding invisible lines, and many families do just that. This, in conjunction with housing segregation, ensures that, rather than a partial remedy, district geographies serve to further entrench society's deep divisions of opportunity. This is one of the issues with something we talked about in our housing episode, white flight, in that when people, especially uh, affluent people, move away from a certain area, they take with them the funding opportunities for the public programs in that area. So in, in 1974, um, there was a case of Milliken v. Bradley that addressed the issue of white flight to the suburbs by suggesting that one remedy would be to bus suburban children into the inner city schools in which whites were the minority. I thought we had taken this out, but we didn't. We put it, we left it in. This is what I was oh, talking nice. about earlier. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that suburban students could not be used to desegregate inner city schools. You couldn't send somebody from the suburb to an inner city school. So people continued to flee to the suburbs. Because most of the people left behind were poor or working class, the cities lost a tax base. As cities became poorer, less money was spent on education. (laughs) So the people left behind, predominantly blacks and other minorities, who could afford to move, those people who could afford to move, they did so. And the inner inner city populations became even poorer. So by the end of the 20th century, many of the largest cities in the United States had public schools that were racially imbalanced and sadly in need of funding for things like maintenance and basic supplies and more teachers. So you you see white people leaving the area, taking their money with them, and then... A second wave of exodus, the, the wealthy minorities who could afford it, moving out into the suburbs for probably things like better school districts for their children. And what you're left with is basically the condensed, uh, poorest populations suffering in not only the, uh, monetary income, but educational income as well. Their schools could not give them now the education that they desperately needed, their children desperately needed, to help break this cycle because it just simply didn't have the resources. And I'm, you can do a quick Google search of like the poorest, the most destitute inner city schools in the United States and just like look at some of the pictures from these places. It will... You hardly believe that it's in the United States. I, I certainly couldn't when I see these pictures. They don't look like they're in any sort of developed country. Yeah, it's it's insane. There's a documentary on Netflix in case anyone's interested called Teach Us All. And it focuses on on some of these main points that we're talking about in the current state of our schools. As I was researching this episode, I, I watched a video from a woman who was talking about some of the hallmarks of systemic racism in our society. And she brought up a study by an organization called EdBuild. And she threw out the number 23 billion. She said that on average every year, white school districts in America get $23 billion more funding than non-white school districts in America. I was shocked. That number is so huge that I figured I absolutely have to figure out what she means. 
So I did a little digging into the actual study itself. And here's how that breaks down. In the United States, 20% of students are enrolled in districts that are both poor and non-white. And by non-white, the study meant that more than 75% of students in that district are not white. And then just 5% of students live in white districts that are equally financially challenged. So more than 75% of the students are white that are equally as poor. So 20% of students in poor minority school districts, 5% in poor white school districts. On average, the schools in white districts, even the poor ones, receive $1,500 to $2,200 more per student each year in funding than the non-white school districts. And that equates to somewhere around that $23 billion mark per year. Obviously, tax revenue uh, varies from year to year. But most of this funding difference is due to local control of tax income that's designated to benefit schools. We talked last episode about property taxes and how property taxes feed into local systems, and those local systems then fund things like infrastructure and education. And this is one of the places that we see those differing tax rates have a significant impact. I did a little digging, and the website offers you the opportunity to look at an interactive map. So I did some comparisons. My home state, Missouri, only shows a gap of 2% funding between non-white and white school districts. That's pretty great, I think. Yeah, it's not bad. But California shows a 20% difference between funding in white school districts and non-white school districts. And for the sake of fairness, we do have to to share that there are some school districts where non-white school districts get more in funding than white school districts. So it's not across the board. It's not everywhere. But a 20% funding difference in a state like California, where the the lowest income bracket and the highest income bracket have a 12 times difference. And just going back to your earlier point, it is on average that there is a difference between minority, primarily minority school districts and white school districts. That's, that's why that's an issue. So yes, there are some places where it's inverse, but it is far fewer than, uh, than the other way around. And that is still a problem. There should be no disparity, really, in a completely and truly just world. And this same funding conversation extends to the debate over school choice and charter schools and whether or not parents should be allowed to take their portion of tax dollars that are set aside for educational funding and invest that in either a private school or a charter school for their child. While on its face, that sounds like a great idea. That sounds like it should give parents an opportunity to get their their children the best possible education. In reality, what it turns out that that does is further defund poorer inner city schools because their portion of tax dollars that's designed to support education for their students is often not anywhere close to enough to cover a private school education or a charter school education. And so funding is taken from these poorer school districts in mass as people try to move their students to charter and private schools, 
and our already underfunded minority inner city schools get even more poor and even fewer resources. The law of unintended consequences is what that is. Another factor of discrepancy of these of these racial disparities is found when you look at disciplinary action. So a 2013-2014 report by the U.S. Government Accountability Office found that black students were overrepresented by 23 percentage points in a study of school disciplinary actions like suspensions, expulsions, and arrests. Uh, boys were, as a group, overrepresented by 18 points. Students with disabilities were overrepresented by 13 points. In June 2016, the United States Department of Education Office of Civil Rights released an initial analysis of the 2013-2014 civil rights data collection. This data set included data from 99.2% of all school districts in the United States, 99.5% of all public schools, and over 50 million students. It is one of the most complete data sets that you could ask for. And initial analyses indicated that black preschool students are 3.6 times more likely than their white peers to be given one or more out-of-school suspensions. In K-12, that trend continues with 18% of black boys receiving suspensions and 10% of black girls, while only 6% of all K-12 students receive one or more out-of-school suspensions. So as a group, 6% receive an out-of-school suspension, 18%, three times more black boys will receive an out-of-school suspension, and 10% black girls, 4% more, 4 percentage points more than the mean, will receive an out-of-school suspension. Further, black students are 1.9 times as likely to be expelled from school and are 2.3 times more likely to be disciplined through law enforcement than their white peers. Goes back a little to something we were talking about uh, with regards to systemic racism in the criminal justice system. When you have a cop at a school, the intent, right, is to be there to protect the children. I think that's what it's sold as on its face. But more often than not, those cops, those school resource officers, get called in on disciplinary matters as well. And you end up with, you know, black students being twice as likely to be disciplined through the law, through law enforcement, than some sort of administrative action at the school itself. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to implicit bias. Those ideas that we all have that influence the way that we make decisions on a daily basis. Everybody's got implicit bias. Not all of it has to do with race. Some of it has to do with class. Some of it has to do with hairstyles. Some of it has to do with past experiences. If I say the name Tiffany and you automatically think of a girl in your third grade class who was mean to you, you have implicit bias. Right. This so is, it's not an accusation. Yeah. It's just a fact of life. It's one, of, it's one of those phrases that automatically set off people who don't really know what it means. It's, it's not a condemnation. It's just part of the human condition. Your brain 
is biologically designed to help you remember bad things in order to help you survive so you know how to react when those bad things happen again. So you develop these biases um, when, when negative events happen in your life. There was a control experiment that was done using hypothetical vignettes where they found that in comparison with white students, teachers were more likely to view the same behavior from black students as being indicative of a long-term problem and deserving of suspension. So they gave teachers these hypothetical situations and they asked that in one situation, they would present the, the story as a white student. And in another very similar situation, they would present the student as a black student. And these teachers were far more likely to give the black students harsher punishments and imply that they had a long-term problem or needed to be suspended or expelled more often than the white students. It was the difference between, oh, he just made a mistake versus it's who, you know, who that person is. Exactly. Similarly, there was some discipline data that was analyzed from an urban high school that showed that black students were especially likely to be referred to the office for discipline on the basis of defiant behavior, which is a relatively subjective category of misbehavior in comparison with some of the other behavior categories that they examined, like truancy or fighting. Defiant behavior was its own category, and black students were far more likely to be sent to the office for violating that particular principle. But as we're talking about implicit bias, I think we also have to talk about the fact that this implicit bias reflects what our teacher population looks like. Sorry, I just, this is going to be the beginning of something that we'll probably bring up frequently, which is this idea of representation. Yeah. And you've probably heard it before in media. I think I talked about it a little last week, talking about bad guys and good guys. It is a much broader topic and one that we hope to talk about later and, and why it's important. But this is right here, a perfect microcosm of the macro level problem. Our teachers do not look like the students that they're teaching. In 2012, 51% of students enrolled in public, I think it's all public schools, were white. 49% were of a minority ethnic group. That includes 16% black, 24% Hispanic, 5% Asian Pacific Islander, only 1% Native American, and then 3% that indicated two or more races. Although it's important to note that two or more races is not always an option on student demographic paperwork. And for families like mine, that makes things pretty complicated. I'm biracial, uh, my husband is white, so my kids are also biracial. And I have, in our district, had to fill out paperwork Uh, and choose one race to identify my kids as because they don't have a two or more races option. (laughs) Generally, though, I choose the one that least aligns with their physical characteristics. I have a redhead with blue eyes and fair skin and freckles, and I pretty much always choose black as her race on those forms. And then I have one daughter who has tan skin and dark hair and dark eyes, and I almost always mark her as white. Because both are equally accurate and equally inaccurate. And I would love to see the reaction on someone's face when they pull up 
their paperwork and think that maybe somebody checked the wrong box. There's a mistake. Yeah, way to stick it to the man. That's awesome. I do always make sure to write biracial next to it. So maybe eventually they'll think to include that on the form as well. Um, because again, representation matters. Not being able to check a box that accurately reflects your heritage. It's, it kind of stings a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's one of those death by a thousand cuts scenarios. Yeah. In and of itself, it's not anything, not one big deal, but when you see it all the time, over and over again in various aspects, it gets frustrating. Yes. And it also hampers the ability, I think, of all kinds of organizations to really accurately understand the demographics of the people that they serve. Yeah. Those of us who come from biracial households, we have a lot of cultural code switching that happens. There's combinations of a bunch of different traditions and histories and families and thoughts that combine in a, a multiracial home. And if you don't know that, if you're not aware of that, then services can't be provided that reflect those differing norms. Again, that representation. Yeah. So we know that in 2012, 51% of, of students in public schools were white, 49 of them, 49% of them were minorities. However, 80% of all teachers in K through 12 public schools are white. 7% of the teachers are black, 8% are Hispanic, 2% are Asian, and only half of a percent are native, although Asian and Native Americans actually have the closest percentages of representation to the student body population. So that's that's important to note. 49% of students are minorities and 80% of teachers are white. Yeah. I There was a, a challenge, I guess, going around on social media a month or two ago. It's like, name the first time you had a black teacher. And I'm from Southwest Missouri, so never, <laughs> I think, is the is the appropriate answer. I, the only the closest thing we had was a, a guest and band who played trumpet. His name was Mr. Pitts, and he was awesome. You know, I, I never had any sort of exposure to a, a black teacher, and the only minority teacher that I can remember having was <laughs> obviously my Spanish teacher. So, who was Venezuelan, I believe. So it's like, okay. Research is actually telling us that that representation is really important to educational outcomes. Being assigned to a same race teacher is linked with more positive teacher perceptions of students, as well as student outcomes as varied as attendance and disciplinary infractions and assignment to gifted and talented programs and student achievement. And since teams of teachers collectively contribute to student learning outcomes, the presence of a teacher of color in a teaching team may actually re-socialize the other teachers to increase their cultural awareness and change their interactions with minority students. And while we're seeing increased representation of other races in teaching, like Hispanic teachers are, are on the rise and Asian teachers are on the rise, we're actually seeing a loss of black teachers in the American public school system. Really? Data from the schools and staffing survey indicates that the percentage of black teachers actually decreased from seven and a half percent 
1987 to 1988 school year to 6.5% in the 2011 and 2012 school year. Thankfully, it's come back up a bit by about half a percent. So we're sitting right again at, at 7%. But there was a conclusion reached by a study of school teachers in North Carolina that found that black teachers tended to work in harder to staff schools that served a larger proportion of students of color and underperforming students, and that those schools had poorer school supports like administration and teacher training, and they were often in lower socioeconomic communities. The schools in North Carolina where black teachers were often found were the schools that had a harder time making education work for their students. Professor Susan Moore Johnson, who specializes in educational research at Harvard, pointed out in a Harvard article about teacher representation in education that black teachers who leave their schools are more likely to leave the profession, whereas white teachers who leave their schools are more likely to go to wealthier schools. <laughs> and this could indicate a whole bunch of things. It could indicate a lack of opportunity for black teachers in wealthier school districts, um, that's the common theory, but there at this point is not any explicit data to confirm that. So it is still just a theory. I can only imagine that burnout plays a massive role in that. Absolutely. These teachers are going to the hardest school districts and I mean, they're probably leaving because it's just so hard to keep fighting when there's so much stacked against you. Obviously, that's just a theory, but. I would not be surprised to see that as a critical factor. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of research being done right now on why black teachers find themselves in these more under-resourced schools and why when they leave, they leave teaching altogether. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the results of a lot of that research in coming years. That representation gap expands even into school administration, not surprisingly, there is a greater representation of African-American and Hispanic principals in urban areas compared with non-urban areas. Um, so 19% um, of principals in K-12 public schools are African-American. Almost 13% of them are Hispanic or Latinx. But then when you get out to rural school districts, you only have 5% of rural principals in K-12 are African-American and 3% are Hispanic. And so you see that representation gap just get wider and wider and wider as students spend sometimes their entire educational lives in schools where their teachers don't look like them, their principals don't look like them, where their cultural values are not understood by the people who are in charge of them, the, the circumstances that they face at home are not understood by their teachers or their administrators. And you see things like the, the more frequent discipline rates, and as we're going to talk about in just a minute, higher dropout rates. As we, we're continuing to talk about administrators here, only 5% of respondents to a national study indicated that they were non-white school superintendents. So out of all of the K-12 schools in America, they did a, a survey of the superintendents, and only 5% of respondents indicated that they were non-white. So we're building these educational systems that are not built on perspectives that serve non-white students because they're run by people who don't have non-white perspectives. Right. 
And so we start to see things like higher dropout rates. The good news here is that the dropout rate among minority students has lessened significantly in the last 25 years. The biggest jump has been, or drop I should say, has been among Hispanic students, which is fantastic, but they are still at the highest dropout risk at 6.5%. Black students have a 5.5% dropout rate. Asian and Native American students are sitting right around 4.5%, and then white students sit at a 3.9% dropout rate. So while we are seeing those dropout rates decline, we are still seeing that minority students are more likely to drop out of school before they graduate from high school than white students are. I'm going to transition here to something that's brought up a lot when you talk about education. And at the broader scale, just in America in general, there's this idea that we are a meritocracy, right? That we're judged on the basis of what we have done, what we have accomplished, our merits. And those with the highest merits will naturally be selected for the the best rewards, whatever that is, either the best education or the best scholarship, etc. And ideally, it sounds pretty good. But in practice, we see disparate application in this. So specifically, when I talk about meritocracies, I'm going to we're going to do one example to kind of highlight the greater problem, um, because I think it kind of will, I think it'll help you understand how to think about these things and, and, and how to interpret information that you get. And it's just easier than trying to run down all of the stats all the time. So I want to talk about a story, um, that I actually heard from another podcast, which I am going to bump right now without any request from these people because they have no idea who we are. <laughs> um, but if you can, I would strongly recommend listening to a podcast called Sawbones. And it's hosted by a couple, Sydney and Justin McElroy, on the Maximum Fun Network. And the show discusses weird, gross, sometimes dangerous ways that we try to solve medical problems throughout time. It's pretty funny most of the time. And sometimes there are these very serious poignant moments. I, I personally can't recommend it enough. It is a lot of fun. I also have to thank my wife for bringing this particular episode to my attention. She thought it would help with the podcast. So thank you very much uh, because it did. And so what we're going to talk about is actually just a summary of one of their episodes. I would Again, go listen directly to this episode for more information, for greater depth. But this is in their June 26th episode, Systemic Racism in Medical Honors. They were in this, they were talking about a society called Alpha Omega Alpha. It's a medical honor society. It's abbreviated AOA. The important thing to know about AOA is that AOA can help your chances of getting into competitive specialties and schools within that specialty. It's a highly desirable society to be part of. The Honor Society has been around since 1902, before medical schools were all kind of prestigious institutions. Very long story short, it was created to lend credibility and gravitas to being a medical student. What's important for us in the lens of structural racism is recognizing that it was established in 1902, which if you've been paying attention, 
is an incredibly <laughs> divisive time with regards to race relations and just problematic all over the place. Importantly, this society wasn't actually intentionally racist, like some of the other things we've talked about that come from this time period. It, the way it operated was that the students at the top of the class could be nominated, the nominations would be reviewed by the instructors, and the students in the class would vote to allow someone in or not. So on paper, pretty relatively fair system. I'm sure you can already start to see some problems with it, again, if, you, if you've listened to this program regularly. Their stated intent, however, was even that they do not discriminate against anybody for entry for any reason, and they actually expanded to include women in the society in 1906. So four years after they were established, they were pretty, pretty progressive already. The problem comes in when you start talking about social structures, about how we relate to each other. So people are more likely to vote in the affirmative for people that they know, their friends, their colleagues, right? They're less likely to vote for what I'll call a social outsider. So in the early 1900s, an African-American attending a medical school was probably, like, I can't make a more clear example of a social outsider. Fast forward to 2017, 115 years after the society was established, the Journal of American Medical Association Internal Medicine found that when you control for board scores, research experience, leadership, basically everything, um, you are still more likely to be accepted into the AOA if you're white than if you're black. They found that both black students and Asian students were less likely than their white counterparts to be members of AOA um, and that this could reflect a bias. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai actually tried to fix this issue. They formed a new process that operated on the assumption that unconscious bias was the main factor for the disparity of representation in AOA. In order to combat that bias, they blinded all of their members. So, sorry, they blinded all of their members to what the candidates looked like <laughs> and anonymized them. They didn't remove their eyeballs. Um, <laughs> they completely removed race as a factor. They only showed the resumes, the curriculum vitae, basically the merits of the applicants. And then they told the members to vote, right? So this was as pure of a meritocracy as one could expect. All that, you, all that the voters could, could see was what the person had done, right? Unfortunately, the bias was still present. So the AOA, as an organization, they received the study, and it has triggered a conversation of why this was the case. There are several theories, but the most prevalent one is, is what it boils down to is that there are a million little things that add up to create a disadvantage for the black student when compared to the white. Now, again, if you've been listening to the past few episodes, this is probably not surprising information to you. It's... The later years in medical school, for example, right, they're graded subjectively by the instructors uh, because usually those classes are more practical, 
hands-on experiences. They're literally doing medical work. The Something that we talked about in this last section with representation of educators, this is why it's so important because the instructors themselves are going to have unconscious bias. You know, biases formed by the culture that they grew up in. You know, that probably affects how they grade. You know, we tend to feel more comfortable around people that are, quote unquote, like us. That means that when somebody is from a different type of culture or subculture, that we might interpret their actions a little differently or more negatively because it seems strange to us. That can also impact who, say, an attending physician asks to help them, which could impact who gets to work on a research paper with someone. Obviously, being, you know, part of a research program is going to look very good on resumes when you apply for things like the AOA, when you apply for jobs in the future. So even going back before that, out of medical school, before, before medical practices are, you know, at issue, how about who is able to dedicate their time to doing volunteer work? Who was in a household that required them to work, to pay their bills so that they could go to school? Who was in a household that allowed them not to work while they went to medical school and gave them more free time? Or not just medical school, any school. And gave them more free time to have these extracurricular activities to become that more well-rounded candidate that so many schools covet, right? If you're from a poor family... Do you have the time and resources to dedicate to working for free, to volunteering, right? Or does all of your non-school time have to go towards working to pay the bills? Are you able to attend school and solely focus on that? Or do you have to work a job with it? Are your grades a little lower because you don't sleep as much, because you don't have as much time to study? This all snowballs together and is reflected in the resumes and in the curriculum vitae and the merits of the person applying for it. I'm going to stress something right now because I can already hear the pitchfork wielding mobs talking about <laughs> how they were poor and how they struggled and etc. These scenarios are not unique to people of color. Obviously, White people have some of the same struggles, maybe all of the same struggles. Obviously, white people can be ostracized by their peers or grow up poor or have to work while attending school. I worked while attending school. But what we're talking about here, what I am asking you to picture, is that people of color are more likely, as a whole, to face these conditions, or maybe several conditions. You know, I see all too often people reacting to hearing these things by saying, well, I was poor, I had to work hard, I had to do whatever thing you are saying is holding this or that group up. I'm not here, we are not here to undercut that effort, okay? Hard work is hard work, regardless of your skin color. If you're listening to this and you felt those thoughts beginning to rise up, please hear me now. Nobody is saying you didn't struggle. Nobody. 
your work, your effort, that is not invalidated. The frustration is not serving you here, though, and it's not good for our country. The only thing examples like this mean is that white people as a whole are less likely to experience these things. And when they do, the magnitude of these effects, the severity of these shortcomings, are less likely to be as detrimental. As a group, people of color are more likely to have more obstacles to overcome. Remember, recognizing other people's problems does not invalidate your own. So try to break out of that thinking. That's an excellent point. Other people's struggles do not invalidate your struggles. Before we move on to talk about outcomes, I do want to acknowledge that there was a significant lack of information about the current state of Native American schools. And that's intentional, simply because so much of life on a Native American reservation is so intertwined and so interconnected that it's almost impossible to separate out the education portion of that and address the conditions and achievement of Native American students in schools on their own reservations. So we've chosen to address that in the context of the public school system. Again, if you're interested in what that might look like, there are some great resources out there. There are some fantastic stories about schools on Native American reservations completely changing the way that they educate their students and seeing fantastic outcomes and incredible success. So if that's something that you're interested in, seek that out. If there's something you want us to see about that, send it to us, communicate it to us. But just know that we do acknowledge that there are significant issues in Native American schools and that all of them are holdovers from the explicitly racist phases of Native American life and the, the programs and the policies that essentially segregated them from the rest of America permanently. We just didn't have the capacity to treat that with the level of detail or respect that it deserves, so we chose to focus on the public school context. Okay, so I think at this point, we've got to talk about outcomes, right? What does all of this mean for students of color in the American public school system? Well, I think one of the most prominent outcomes of an under-resourced education is crime. There has been extensive work, extensive research done to assess the relationship between educational outcomes and criminal behavior. And most of that research demonstrates that poor educational outcomes are very strongly correlated with criminal behavior. And there are some, some theories about why that may be. The primary theories include higher wages, right? People who are have better edu educational outcomes have higher wages, and so they less often need to turn to criminal activity to meet what they perceive to be, to be basic needs or to engage in what they consider to be an alternative economy. Um, for people who have higher educational outcomes, the punishment cost is also higher. 
in that criminal activity is associated with lost wages, lost credibility, the inability to regain meaningful work. So when you're educated and you earn higher wages, you suffer more when there's punishment for that criminal behavior. And then another primary theory is that education fundamentally changes a person's level of risk aversion. The idea that because you are more educated and you understand the potential consequences better, you will be more averse to the risk of criminal behavior. Another outcome for under-resourced education is wages. Again, this feels too obvious to even address, but study after study correlates educational outcomes with wage earning potential. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that the median weekly income for someone with a doctoral degree is three times higher than that of someone without a high school diploma. So the numbers were something like $1,880 a week on average for someone with a doctoral degree and $592 a week for someone without a high school diploma. And looking at conversely, the average unemployment rate is five times lower for someone who has a doctoral degree than it is for someone who does not have a high school education. And then finally, the extension of that wage earning potential is generational poverty. Generational poverty is characterized by the inability of generation after generation to earn a living wage and we know that undereducation contributes heavily to this generational poverty cycle. Students that come from low-income households are five times more likely to drop out of school than those that come from high-income households. They're more exposed to obstacles at home like food scarcity and frequent moves and a lack of in-home parental support. And so they drop out of school and then that leads to those poor wage earning outcomes and the outcome of criminal behavior and you end up with just a, a revolving cycle of generational poverty because of, at least partially because of, an under-resourced education. I think something else we kind of touched on it is a lack of funding for a school system also means that the education, the educators are going to be either greener, newer, right? Or they're going to leave the field. So yeah. one of the outcomes for this disparity in, in, in education is going to be a declining, and you, you hit on this, declining representation of minority groups in uh, leadership positions. So it's, it just kind of feeds in, like you said, it's a cycle. It all feeds into itself over and over and over again. And it takes a specific concerted effort to break the cycle and work on moving up out of it. In summary, what we have talked about tonight has been another high-level overview of what systemic racism looks like in education. We talked about some of the explicitly racist things that happened in the past and how that impacted both indigenous people and African-Americans, as well as other minorities, and 
how those explicitly racist systems, like the, the forced labor schools, like segregation, then turned around and fed into the thought process and how systems were built after it was either struck down, like segregation was, or we decided to move out of these old way of doing things. Just because we passed a law doesn't mean that we cured the underlying cause of the explicit racism. The thoughts were still there. And even if people were aware of those thoughts, the unconscious bias was still there. And that all feeds into building the, the systemic system that we talked about afterwards, about how teachers aren't representative of the population, about um, disciplinary differences, about funding differences, and how that all feeds into disparate representation between the races, which is exactly what systemic racism would be, a disparate impact on one race over another. We're getting ready to wrap up. I'm going to hand you some good news before we log off. But as always, uh, we would like to ask you kindly to please, please, please rate and review us on whatever platform that you're on. Uh, it can be a process, and I understand that. But we greatly appreciate every single one of those that we get. Every time you leave us a, a rating or a review, that tells the algorithms and whatever system in iTunes that this show is quality and that it is okay to recommend it. So it will then be recommended to more people. And we absolutely have to have that. If we need a broader audience. I'm not going to pretend like we don't. <laughs> we, we need to expand our reach. We want to expand our reach. That's why we started doing this in the first place. So please help us by doing that. If you want to reach out to us directly, you can send us an email at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Use that to tell us you liked something. We're never going to say no to hearing a good, you know, <laughs> a good word. But you can also use it to bring up a topic that you'd like us to talk about or to say, hey, you said this, but in my experience, in my research, in my profession, I found this. Or in addition to that, did you see, did you guys see this? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this stuff. If there is something specific you want us to talk about, please send it. We have tons of ideas, but we, we need to know what you need to hear what you want to hear. Our ideas are not set in stone. Our timeline is not set in stone. We will gladly switch focus on something if we hear that somebody desperately wants more information on it. So please send it our way. You can also find us on Facebook. We, I think you can just search Fireside Breakdowns on Facebook. You'll see our little, our little emblem there, the little cover to our podcast. Robin is awesome at that i'm not gonna lie she is way better at it than i am it's my actual job so i kind of have to be yeah that's good that's really good that you're good at it um but we don't just post the podcast there we post interesting articles that we came across we post resources that you can look at if you're interested 
Uh, we post book recommendations, stuff that we've come across that we think more people should look at, that more people should read. We would engage in conversation if anybody ever commented. Uh, but again, that's why we need more people. So yeah. yeah, you can find us there. Just another avenue to reach out to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you, however that is. So thank you so much. Um, let's talk about some good things really quick, and we'll sign off for the night. Yeah, give me that good news. Yeah, I get to do it this week because you did it last time. This is an article from the Department of Education, actually. It came out yesterday, and I think it's great. In light of everything that's happening in the United States and in the world with this uh, coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic, this is uh, good news from everything that I can find on it. So yesterday, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos announced that more than $180 million in new grant funding will be awarded to 11 states rethinking education to better serve students during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is the Rethink K-12 Education Models Grant, and it will support states' efforts to create new, innovative ways for students to continue learning in ways that meet their needs. So awardees include Georgia, Iowa, Louisiana, Maine, North Carolina, New York, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Texas. The awards range from $6 million to $20 million. So what this is, is Congress set aside 1% of the $30.75 billion allotted to the Education Stabilization Fund through the CARES Act for grants to states with the highest coronavirus burden. The Department of Education announced the Rethink K-12 Education Models, the REM, grant competition in April 2020 and invited any state educational agency to apply. Those applications were then reviewed by an independent panel who then assigned a score to them and the highest scoring states received grants. Preference was given to states with a high coronavirus burden, which is why you see some of the, the highest, hardest impacted states receiving this money. The program specifically supports new innovative ways to access education with an emphasis on meeting students' needs during the coronavirus national emergency. So specifically, it calls for projects to provide families with microgrants so that states can ensure families have access to the technology and services to advance learning remotely. That was priority one. Statewide virtual learning and course access programs so that students can access a full range of subjects, even those not taught in their assigned setting. That's, that was priority two. And new field-initiated models for providing remote education to ensure that every child is learning and preparing for successful careers and lives. That was priority number three. I really like this because of something that you were talking about uh, with Dr. Kendi. Something he said was that we need to, we need to realize that one size fits all is not necessarily the best way to do things. And I can see this being used to develop other sizes, if you will. Yes. And only time will tell how it's going to be applied. Obviously, there is a lot of room for error here. And we I looked into this as much as I could. There could be a, a some sort of poison pill in this somewhere. I haven't been able to find it. 
but I, you know, I think on its surface, at least from what I've seen from the announcement, this is really good news. You know, I don't think I am hesitant. I should say to complain about more money being sent to our school systems. Absolutely. That's the kind of good need, good news that I needed today. Any last thoughts before we go? I just want to reiterate, this was a really heavy, heavy episode, um, but this is a heavy, heavy topic. So again, do your research, get involved, and challenge yourself to step out and advocate. If anything stood out to you, if anything made you feel strongly, step out, advocate, and go out and change the educational system. Thank you very much, everybody. We will see you in a couple weeks with another breakdown. Until then, stay safe.